my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. In a December 2022 Queer40.com article, Rashid Newsen is described as a multi-hyphenate trailblazer, author, television drama writer, executive producer, and showrunner. Rashid's producing and writing credits include shows like Peacock's Bel Air, Netflix's Narcos, and Showtime's The Shy. It's safe to say he's carved several lanes for himself, finding success in different media. Additionally, he's on the board of directors of Princeton, New Jersey's Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice. Now with his debut novel, the New York Times Notable and New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, My Government Means to Kill Me, Rashid is proving that his talents know no limits. Taking place in the mid-80s, the novel's protagonist is a young Black gay man whose experiences are relatable to anyone, young or old, in search of their path and purpose in life. I look forward to conversing with Mr. Newsom about his novel, his success in the entertainment industry, and what motivates him to be the best in whatever he sets out to pursue. Greetings and welcome. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I mean, I love that. I feel like everybody should listen to their bio being read out loud once a day. That felt good. Thank you. You're welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm in a happy mood. My starting state in the morning. And you're based in California. California out in lovely Pasadena. I lived in LA for a long time, so I have to admit I do miss that sun. I mean, I have a, a deep affection for Los Angeles, and I love the people in it, particularly our industry. I mean, it is a city that attracts dreamers. There's something very special there. Ah, that's a very positive way to see it. Hearing that you say it's a place where we do come to dream, it's very true. I do believe that. You're on your book tour for the book, My Government Means to Kill Me. And you were recently in my home state of Arizona, in Tucson. The book tour is going great. I, I enjoy Tucson. I was at the Tucson Festival of Books. It's been one of my favorite so far. As everyone can guess, it's lovely to meet readers and do panels and just have you know enthusiastic people sort of greet your work. What I really also loved about the festival, though, is I got to hang out with a lot of writers who I really admire. I was on a panel with... Andrew Sean Greer and Jonathan Escoffrey. I love their work. And so it was just nice to be able to like hang out with them. Since it's been published, is this the first time you're really getting to interact with other writers? With other authors. I've spent the last 15 years in the TV writing space. I see TV writers all the time. But to hang out with authors, it's a totally different vibe. Television writers, for better or worse, we're often in competition a lot of times. Our shows can be in competition. We can be up for the same projects, up for the same jobs. Whereas when you hear about an author who's written a book that's quite different than your own, your competitive instincts don't fire up. You're just like, that sounds lovely. Like everybody's just happy for everybody else. At least that's been my experience. It's my first time around. Who knows how time will change. But as a debut novelist, it's just been a delight. Well, yeah, as a debut novelist, you've gotten a lot of positive feedback for the novel. I'm about 80% into it, not just because I'm interviewing, but it's a really, really good story. And for me, I really 
dove into it just immediately. And not just because it's a Black gay lead, but it's well-written. And also, for me, it was a character that I can relate to, not so much in some of the specifics, but just the overall inner dialogue of the lead character. Thank you. You know, I mean, one of the things I try to point out in the panel is you may not be Black, you may not be gay, but you have but one time been as young as Trey is. And there's something about that brand of youth that is a little idealistic, a little arrogant, a little reckless. And that, I think, rings true and is familiar for a lot of readers. So with you having your success as a television writer and producer, when did you find a time to write a novel? <laughs> I found time to write this novel around the rest of my life. Like I just sort of would get up in the morning or work late at night or find a slow hour. I didn't put a lot of pressure on myself to write this many words a day or to finish by any specific deadline. I sort of told myself the book will take as long as it takes. But it's a story that had been with me for a while, and I just really wanted to get it out. So it took about a year and a half. Life would get in the way. I have two small children. I have a husband I also like spending time with. I had a full-time job, and oh, there was a pandemic. So there were times where I'd be swept away from the book for days, maybe even a couple weeks. I didn't stress about it. In TV, we hit all our deadlines. TV is merciless that way. And I decided not to write under that same kind of pressure. I haven't given you space to actually talk about the novel and what it's about. Oh, sure. My Government Means to Kill Me is the political and sexual coming of age of a 19-year-old gay Black man who moves to New York City in the mid-80s and finds himself swept up in the politics of the time, primarily the fight against AIDS, and he becomes a founding member of ACT UP. What I wanted to do was take someone who seemed maybe unlikely to be someone who was a player in a political movement and show how that happens. I wanted to hit that time in life where we go from imagining who we might be to finding out who we are. And now why did you choose that time period? I remember it very clearly. I mean, that time period for me happened to be in D.C. when I was in college. But I remember that feeling of when you're sort of living on your own and all of your big talk about how you're going to live when you're on your own, you've got to put that into practice. You've got to sort of live up to who you've been telling people you would be if you could do it your way. And it's scary and it's exciting and it's fun. And you meet a lot of interesting people along the way. I liked that in the story. I liked having a character who just by virtue of walking out their door was probably going to get into some good trouble and going to be interesting to stick with. That very important time in life when I was grown at 18. I'm not grown today because <laughs> today I know I don't know everything. <laughs> I mean, that's what I remember. I think I was a polite person on the outside, but my inner monologue was incredibly dismissive of anybody really over 25. I grew up in Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana. This is not a generous attitude to carry, but I'll share it with you just to let you know where I was at that age. When I was a teenager and adults would talk to me about my attitude and adults were always pulling me aside to talk about my attitude, I would think to myself quietly, if you knew anything, you wouldn't be in Indiana. <laughs> I just was convinced that my life was going to be somewhere else and I would be playing by different rules. 
that was wrong of me in the sense that I wasn't going to follow them verbatim, but they probably had something to share and they were more than likely motivated by some sort of concern and kindness. But I couldn't see that as a teenager. I just wanted everyone to leave me alone. Yeah, I laughed because I relate. Mine was Arizona. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a universal story. You also based the time period of the novel in the mid-1980s. I don't know your age, so I'm going to guess that you weren't of age at that time. I was not, yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I chose that time, the mid-80s, for two reasons. One, it's a time where you really had to decide if you were going to stand up and be counted, if you were going to join the fight for our queer community, were you going to do something? And then the question was, okay, but what are you going to do? How are you going to be on the front lines? Are you going to protest? Are you going to be of service to people? Like, how does one choose their role in a political movement that's sort of coming together fast? And so I was fascinated by that sort of crucible. It's the thing that sort of gives the story its heart. You could have written a book about a gay Black man just moving to New York. And if you had made it 1975, you wouldn't have had this sort of call to arms necessarily that you get when you move into 85. So that period was was great. I also have spent most of my life seeing documentaries and reading books and listening to interviews about that time. That is sort of our civil rights movement in terms of how we really sort of came together and took on the government. I was fascinated and drawn to that. I had a lot of background knowledge about it. I'd been steeped in it, so to speak. And so the two sort of married each other in a very, I thought, compelling way. For me as a reader, it's fiction, but there's also history there. I found like when I was in my TV work, I remember asking some of the production assistants who were always like fresh out of college, do you know who Larry Kramer is? And they were like, oh yeah, he's an AIDS activist or he's a gay rights activist. And I said, but what kind of person was he like? Do you know anything about his personality? And they didn't. And that's amazing to me because he had a huge personality. And yet, in time, because these things aren't taught in schools, gay history isn't taught in schools, what people are learning is very superficial. It's very surface. You have these very complex leaders. If the history isn't passed along, they become flattened out like postage stamps. I mean, I knew some of the names that you reference in the book. There were some that I didn't know. And so for me, it was educational. There were some I wondered, and so I was like, well, just in case, let me just look it up before I keep going. One character in particular, I was just really amazed. I was on Wikipedia and wherever I could be online for a while, just looking up this person that I had never heard of, who is an important historical figure. So, yeah. Do you remember the name? Was it Dorothy Cotton? Dorothy, yeah. Oh, I love her. I mean, she should be on the Mount Rushmore of the civil rights leaders, in my opinion. I was thrilled to have her in the book. One of her speeches gives the book its title. Is Trey based on a historical figure? No, not wholly, no. Trey is my best attempt to take some version of myself and drop it into history. Trey is much more courageous and reckless than I am, but we share certain attitudes at that age. I wanted somebody I could really relate to and get under their skin since the book is in first person. And so Trey is pretty close to my attitude and worldview and just saying, okay, now how would that play out in 1985? 
I liked that it was a Black gay character that was written from another socioeconomic background. I don't necessarily come from that, but it was refreshing to me to see that on paper, written in a way that I know is an actual history of a Black person, but I like that that's who Trey is. I wanted that in part because I felt like money would explain why he in some ways could be rather naive, why some of the depth of inequality was new to him. He'd never been without a dollar before, and he didn't realize how much his family's money and also standing created a protective shield around him. And you, know, you said you want to be out on your own. Now you're going to feel it. If he had run away from a, you know, a really tough upbringing, then maybe this would have been more of the same. It wouldn't have hit him as, as hard. But if you take some rich kid who says, well, I don't want your money and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and be on my own, that's falling from a different height. It's cute when you think you're making the money, but then you have to release it to pay bills. That's a different story. <laughs> yeah. When they start adding up, you go, I don't have anything left. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've read one of the reviews on the book and something that I didn't think about until I read it, but I think that really adds to the piece is that it is a story that is about a gay man and that you write about his life, which includes his sex life in a way that is not encased in shame. It's just written very matter-of-factly. How was that process for you in writing those types of scenes that way? It was quite liberating to write the sex openly and honestly. I work in television, and I think there's a feeling that maybe anything goes in television. I can assure you that is not the case. A lot of sort of sex still gets heavily censored, questioned, cut from the piece. And so it was nice to have a sort of canvas where I could just write honestly and openly about gay sex in particular. The joy of it and the emotional complexity of it and what it means to us and or can mean to us. I don't think sex is frivolous. I think it teaches us a lot about who we are and what we value. And so I wanted that reflected in the book. And it's probably the first time in my career I've been able to write sex as I have experienced it, as I know it. Oftentimes when I read sex or see it even on screen, I'm sort of disappointed because it's so clinical and it's so tame. Anytime I watch sex between two men, I'm always fascinated that they don't even tell you like, well, who did what to whom? Like they're just, they're just both laying there in bed with their shirts off. And I'm like, okay, but what happened? How did this go down? We just sort of skip over that. And that's not an insignificant detail in the mating ritual, so to speak. So I was glad to be able to just let it fly. Yeah, especially as it's written during the mid 80s to get a take on someone's sex life that even though that was our pandemic, the gay community in particular, that you were writing about a character who still reveled and embraced his sex life. It's interesting because I think at the time, that's something it would have almost maybe felt taboo to admit, right? We're having a disease that's sexually transmitted. Let's just assume that everybody responsible is being chased, except we know that's not the actual history of human relations, that people often break from whatever they're told they should be doing with sex to doing what they feel called to do during sex. And so I felt good just sort of being honest about that in the story. 
it probably feels very affirming in a way that you're not supposed to be doing it. Mm. To a much smaller degree, I had the same cognitive dissonance when I was a college student in the, in the late 90s. I volunteered at a foster care home for children who are HIV positive and, and living with AIDS. And I would be there until we like put the kids to bed and it'd be like 8.30, 9 o'clock. And I would get on my bike in U Street Cardoza and I would ride over to DuPont Circle. I would lock my bike up and I'd go to two to three clubs. At 18, 19 years old, there was almost like I had to shake that off by going out and being free and dancing and having sex. There's something about being young where I think you feel invincible in a way. It can allow you to do some really brave things. It can also be very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Just having flashbacks to my own youth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I think as we get older, I think we should be honest about when we were younger. Yeah. We can all sort of pretend that we never behaved in, in a way that was, quote unquote, irresponsible. You didn't ask all the questions. You didn't take all the precautions. With you being a television writer and having experience working in television, I mean, for me as a fan of the book, I could see this as a film or a television project. I mean, I wrote it primarily as a book because I thought that's where it had the best chance of living and finding an audience. Okay. I mean, if I thought I could sell this as a television show, my writing partner, TJ, and I would have written a pilot. But I don't know that the market in television would have openly embraced this idea sight unseen, like me just walking in with a script and saying, hey. And so... The book seemed like the best place creatively for me to sort of, you know, tell the story the way I wanted to tell the story. And it's finding its audience, which has just been great. With the success of this being your debut novel, has this whet your appetite to write another book? Oh, I'm already at work. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. I'm really excited by what I think is my mandate, like what I get to do, which is just, look at history and find that Black queer moment, find those stories that make people go, oh, you think you know about this time period? Let me tell you what this was like for our people. Let me show you a side of this they didn't teach you in school and maybe you've never thought of. Because we were always in the story, we're always in the picture, but we don't always get to play the lead. Mm. And what I get to do with our books, with my books, is, you know, put a spotlight on us. And I'm really excited about that. It's been a long time. You know, this is just me being transparent that I've read fiction work. And so, yeah, I can tell for myself because I love to read within the first page. I'm like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, with your gifts as a writer, both with writing a novel and then working in television, when did you discover your talent for writing? I mean, I was a child. Writing has always been the best and in a lot of ways the safest way for me to communicate, especially when I'm having strong emotions. Like if I tried to talk and I was very upset and the words wouldn't come out, I could sit down and write a letter about how upset I was. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to write letters to my parents protesting my bedtime or explaining why I should be able to go see some movie or have a sleepover. And so it just became 
the preferred form. I even did this with teachers. I remember the secretary at my uh, grade school, Miss Lopez, we became quite close and fond of each other. But I remember writing her a letter asking her, why is it she didn't like me? Mm-hmm. Why was she always so mean to me? I think I was in the third grade. She was stunned. <laughs> she was very sweet. She invited me to lunch and we talked it out. And she said, I don't dislike you. What is this coming from? That was, and it still sort of in a lot of ways remains the best way for me to communicate with people. I'd probably say for if I have something I really want to get across, it's probably better for me to write an email than for me to call you up and talk on the phone. Mm. I have to be more deliberate in my words. And when I'm talking, not only am I prone to getting emotional, I'm also prone to being a smart ass. And saying something funny or saying something just to play off what you said, which feels really great in the moment but does me no favor in getting my point across. And it turns out I don't do that as much in my writing, that when I have to write it down, I'm not tempted to be as glib or flippant as sometimes I am when I'm just talking to people. Okay. I thought of RuPaul's Drag Race, and a lot of times people who do drag say that when they get into drag, that gives them the courage to be more in the moment or more spontaneous with their words, but yours is the reverse of that, it seems like. I have two little kids. You know, you don't want to yell, you don't want to raise your voice, you're trying to always sort of be calm. But sometimes when something frustrating would happen, I would sigh, I'd be like, and just sort of collect myself. And my son says to me, can you not sigh at me like that? It hurts my feelings. Oh, And I had to go, oh my God, okay, all right, I won't sigh. We have to be very responsible, I think, about the signals we send out. And again, with writing, the words on the page, while they can be misinterpreted, they're not complicated by body language or tone or all the other things that can sort of muddle the message when you're talking to people one-on-one. It's food for thought. You mentioned growing up in Indianapolis and kind of referenced when you discovered your writing skills, but what was life like for you growing up in Indiana? I mean, (laughs) let's start with the positive. I mean, what was nice about growing up in Indiana is most of my family was there. I felt there were a lot of people who cared for me. There were a lot of people looking out for me. Conversely, it was a very, and remains a very conservative place. And at an early age, I knew there were things about me that made me quite different. I think I had to shoulder and navigate more than I should have, given how young I was. I saw no future for myself as a gay, black, creative person in Indianapolis. Like I don't know what the height of my experience could have been there, but it wasn't going to be enough for me. So I knew at a very early age I had to leave. There's a Midwestern sensibility that's been ingrained in me. Some of that that's useful, I feel I've kept. And what wasn't, I sort of threw by the wayside. I think that's the job of every adult navigating their childhood. Keep what works and and ditch what doesn't. Yeah. I read on your bio that after college, you you wanted to come to L.A., of course, but did you ever have thoughts of going to New York and maybe conquering Broadway? I mean, TV and movies are what I saw. I saw plays, but I mean, it was Sondheim, and I was pretty sure I wasn't him. 
I certainly didn't know enough examples of black and black and gay people, like composers and lyricists. I'm happy there are many, many now. There were many then, but it wasn't what I was exposed to. I actually, coming out of college, even more so than entertainment, thought I could start a career in journalism, except nobody would have me. I had worked for the school paper at Georgetown. I think I sent my resume everywhere when I came to LA. I couldn't get a, a, a foothold in that world, but I did get a job as an assistant on the Fox lot in the uh, TV publicity department. I mean, once I was there, I'm seeing scripts, I'm seeing cuts, and that world had me. Mm. So how soon after that, or how long after that, what was the time frame from starting there to actually starting to create content that the public was able to see? Oh, most of my 20s. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing. It was like, graduated from college, I worked for a nonprofit called the Coalition for Juvenile Justice. And I was a manager in the communications department at, at this nonprofit. And I want to say was making $50,000, which felt like a lot. And then I left that job to come answer phones and fetch coffee for $600 a week. Wow. It was a bit of a come down, but it was the way in to the business. It was hard to just stay out here. I racked up all kind of credit card debt. The problem still remains for, I think, people of color and people who don't come from wealth, quite frankly. How do you survive in a city as expensive as L.A. when you are paid so little? The answer for me was I end up taking on debt, which I was lucky enough to be able to pay down once I got working. But I came out here at, I believe, 22, and I got hired on Lie to Me when I was 29. What was it within you or within your support network that kept you going? Fear of humiliation. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what else I was going to be. I mean, that was the other thing that had sort of gotten frightening. At some point, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm 29 years old. I've been an assistant or an executive assistant for more than half a decade. If I want to stop this, what exactly is it I think I'm qualified to go do now? Who will have me and as what? You find yourself in a bind, I think. And I think it's what makes show business a bit of a torture when you're trying to come up. There becomes no clear off-ramp for this. I mean, here's one for you. You've worked on a show or two. You're now in your 30s, late 30s, maybe early 40s. And you're not making a consistent living, but you've got a couple credits. Should you walk away? How many years do you wait before you walk away? And where are you going? I like to think that luckily with the book and with my experience in television, that maybe I could get a job teaching. Not that that is known as a lucrative pursuit, but I go, oh, I guess I could do that. But for a lot of writers or a lot of creatives, if your career stalls, you're in real trouble because there really isn't a fallback for you. A lot of these skills aren't translatable. W what other industry am I going to take that to? And it's going to really matter. It gets grim for the unsuccessful. Real life. It's, it's just telling it like it is. It's the part that no one tells you when you dream about being a creative. That it can start off with blazing success and then stall out. 
and no one tells you what you're supposed to do with yourself or how you come back from that, how you transform yourself if it's even possible. <clears throat> the only other town where I think I've seen it is DC, quite frankly, in politics, where what we're talking about is not just a vocation for people, but for a lot of people, it feels like a calling. It's not just a job. It's tied into their identity. It's tied into who they think they are in the world. And the inability to pursue it leaves them rudderless. I mean, one reason why I'm really glad I started, I started writing books is there are times when you're between shows and you don't have anything to work on. And... I'm better when I have something to work on. I feel more like myself. I don't imagine myself in a position where I'd say, oh, well, I haven't written anything in months. That wouldn't be me. Mm. But if you work out here in Hollywood, you could have months between projects. So you have to have something of your own to go back to. Like what does it say, uh, different irons in the fire? <laughs> yeah, and some of them should be yours. <laughs> <Not that. laughs> um, you know, you are showrunner and executive producer. Now, for those of us who are not in the know, I kind of have a general idea of what a producer is, but what is a showrunner? The showrunner is the last creative word and decision maker before you get to like studio execs in the network. So for the cast and crew, the showrunner or showrunners, because I do this with my writing partner, TJ Brady, you're the last word on casting, story direction, scripts. You are approving just about everything before it goes to the studio network. Now, the studio network can tell the showrunner, we hate this, change this. I mean, it's very rare that they will put their foot down and say, if you don't change this, it's over but that's a little more rare. It's supposed to be more of a creative discussion in a healthy environment once you get there. But day to day, if the costume, the people in charge of wardrobe have a selection of dresses and say, what do you think they should be wearing? I mean, typically you try to let people make the decision and run their departments, but you are the backstop. You're the person who says, actually, I don't like that. Here are the reasons, let's do this. And that's the job. But would you have it any other way? I mean, honestly, yeah. <laughs> you would. It's got a lot going for it. It's fun. It's the quote-unquote top of the mountain. But it's very tricky up there. So I will tell you, and I'll tell everybody, the best job in Hollywood. The best job in Hollywood is a co-EP. It's second in command, third in command even. One of the things I've loved about this career is the camaraderie I get to have with the cast and crew. And... When you are a co-executive producer, you can get your coffee in the morning and join everybody in the daily gossip. You can joke around with the actors. People can bounce ideas off of you. When you are the showrunner, when you are the boss, you don't get that camaraderie anymore. I see. Thanks for that. Yeah. I was going to look it up, but I was like, I think it's better to hear it from somebody with the experience. <laughs> you know, you've worked on shows like Bel Air, The Shy. Shooter and Narcos, all dramas. Do you ever write for comedies? I'm a drama writer by trade. I try to put comedy into these shows. My writing partner, teaching and I, we think we're funny. But in a drama, comedy is always the first thing to go. 
when you get into editing and you're six and a half minutes long on the episode, you start taking air out of out of scenes between the dialogue. You take out the comedy because it's always just easier to go off the drive of action to just stick to that dramatic through line. Hmm. Again, this is why I was happy with this book. I mean, I've written a book about a gay black man, young gay black man during the AIDS crisis. And the last couple panels I've been on at, at, at events and the panel I'm going to do next, they've been about writing humor in the middle of something that's very political. So as serious as the book may present, people are finding a lot of humor in it. This is probably the most comedic I've ever gotten to be is writing this book and sort of having fun with that. Just using that muscle that, again, I don't often get to use in my television work. I just thought of a couple of things just now from the book that uh, definitely, you know, with the bonding and the relationships that are formed in there, there is humor there. Yeah. So television, books, do you or have you done featureless films? Not yet. Good Lord. It'd be lovely. I mean, I think what's happened primarily is we've been very busy in television, knock on wood. TJ and I have sort of gone from one project to another. And so there hasn't been a lot of time to try to develop in the feature space, but I would love to. Someone has something they want to bring us. You know, we're repped at UTA. Just, you know, drop a line. You mentioned TJ Brady. I didn't ask about him. Is that normal to have a, a producing partner, a writing partner? There's nothing normal about it, but I recommend it. I don't know if they're rare, but they're certainly far from common. Most writers, it's a solitary pursuit. I feel in television, especially as you start producing, it's really good to have someone you could trust. TJ and I are like brothers, and so we kind of know what the other one's thinking. We can divide the job up and be away from each other, and with a high degree of accuracy, I don't need to call TJ and ask him what he would think of such a, a decision, what needs to be done. I know what that would be. We get a lot done. We protect each other. We protect each other's sanity. We protect each other's time. So I love having a writing partner. It's not the norm. You have to have faith that you are at all times better off together than you are on your own. Mm. I don't know that a lot of people can hit that trust. Definitely have a great track record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's worked out pretty well. Anything else you'd like to share about the book or any projects that you have? I just would like to remind everybody who loves books that word of mouth is the lifeblood of books, particularly books by writers of color or LGBTQIA writers. We get some attention when we first come out, but what keeps these books alive are platforms like this. You love a book? Tell it 10 people. Go ahead and post it. So many people, they post what they had for dinner. They post where they went on vacation. Go ahead and post what you're reading. Tag the author. Let people know. We certainly want to hear it, but it also helps the books survive. I will follow that suggestion and do that for this book. Thank you. Oh, also follow me on social media. I should also say that. My husband will kill me. For Twitter, I'm at Rashid Newson, R-A-S-H-E-E-D-N-E-W-S-O-N. And then for Instagram, it's Rashid.Newson.Author. I've been already telling people that it's a great book. And thank you again for taking time out to share with this platform. Thank you for having me, Eric. 
Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.